And we are live. Uh, welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. Uh, this is the kickoff webinar in our September series titled Embracing Video Games for Interest-Powered Learning. Uh, my name is Paula Esquadra and I am the Digital Marketing and Communications Manager for GlassLab. Uh, I'll, I'll be your host for today. Um, throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we'll be diving into some deep conversations around leveraging video games for high-impact learning as well. So today we'll be chatting specifically about how to navigate and design video games uh, as they are considered for 21st century literacies, as well as how they can help with other literacies. Um, but before we dive into our chat, uh, let's go over a couple of quick details. Uh, to those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or via the Google Plus event page. Uh, we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Hangout. Uh, we're also chatting throughout the month on the Connected Learning Google Plus community and using the same uh, Google uh, Connected Learning hashtag on Google Plus. Uh, I'd like to give our, uh, our guests a chance to briefly introduce ourselves. Erin um, Hoffman, would you like to start? Sure. I guess I'm sorry on the left. Um, my name is Erin Hoffman. I'm the game design lead at Glass Lab, and uh, we are a nonprofit game and learning studio dedicated to uh, putting games into the classroom and with the goal of making uh, the classroom a more engaging place by giving teachers tools that they can use to uh, illuminate the learning that's taking place in uh, technology and in, in video games. Uh, I actually come from the commercial game development world. I've been a commercial game designer for 15 years. I've uh, worked on games for Konami and DreamWorks and Zynga, lots of different places. Uh, as a game designer, I've always been fascinated with learning because learning is what you do in a game and it's we, we need to teach our players how to play the games that we want them to play in order to take them to a place emotionally. Uh, so for me, it was a natural fit to kind of come to a place like Last Lab where I can take the work that I've done and try to um, actually change the world with it. So that's me. Welcome, Erin. Uh, Kylie Jenner, how about you? Hi, I'm, I'm Kylie Pepler, and I am um, a learning scientist at Indiana University. And what I do is I design new learning environments and study how they shape um, the learning experience, as well as how they can help us to rethink our teaching and our general pedagogies. And so um, a lot of my work has been inspired by new media arts, and particularly games. And so uh, game mechanics give us a way to rethink classroom learning experiences of the ways that we can redesign teaching and learning. A long time ago, I was on um, the original Scratch team and so uh, we were studying sort of the um, uh, the original development of Scratch and so I studied a lot of what the kids actually designed in the in the Scratch space and and how they borrowed from the games that they played into the game design experience and so I studied a lot of what kids learned in the in the game design process um, since then I've been working with uh, Katie Salen and others um, you know studying game star mechanic and uh, really thinking about how game design could really start to transform the teaching process and so we we have um, a new series of books that have been inspired um, by the sort of gaming orientation to schooling kind of coming out here uh, this fall. Great, glad to have you. Um, and Matt Farber. Hi, I'm uh, Matthew Farber. I teach social studies at Valley View Middle School in New Jersey. Uh, so you know I am a um, practicing teacher. Uh, I am also an adjunct instructor at New Jersey City University. Uh, for the educational technology department, I am I'm a uh, educational technology leadership doctoral candidate as well. I'm uh, in the middle of the program. Um, I just wrote a book for the uh, Peter Lang 
publishing series, uh, New Media Epistemologies, and the book is, uh, well, as of now, I don't think it's changed, is uh, titled Gamify Your Classroom, A Field Guide to Game-Based Learning, which is a uh, survey of best practices uh, in the field, and it led me to speak with uh, a lot of uh, leaders in the field of um, non-digital games and digital games from areas of um, play-based learning experts uh, to areas of um, academics and in practice and, and um, you know, what really is going on because there are, I believe, a lot of fantastic initiatives, but the communication of what's going on in design, development, um, there are a lot of barriers to get that into the classroom. So I'm writing it from a teacher perspective, uh, you know, how I apply it, um, lesson plan ideas, and how to promote like a, a game-like learning environment. In my classroom, I use as many resources as I can, so I use resources from Glass Lab, of course, uh, games that are used at Quest to Learn from Institute of Play, um, games from BrainPop, uh, and their site. I also um, play test a lot in class. My students, I use them and they are my co-designers or participatory designers as we play test everything. So I ask them a lot of feedback questions and you know we're taking this trip together. So yeah, this year I am putting into practice from day one all the research from my book from last year. So it's been an exciting start. Very cool. Uh, great to have you all. Um, and so now I suppose we'll dive into the content. Uh, so in the digital era we live in today, over 91% of young kids do play video games and do so constantly. Um, it's been uh, increasingly complex how we're learning and engaging uh, as well as adapting and identifying solutions to our real world problems. Um, especially when we take into consideration how many more ways in which we're interacting now. Uh, so what are the skills demanded for an increasingly technologically driven world and how may video games provide added value? Is that to anybody? <laughs> I, I could start, I could start. In, uh, in my class I, uh, I have um, work, um, not work, I have uh, posters and things hanging up around the room about the skills that are from games and uh, I think the two strongest ones I teach social studies so the two strongest ones in my class are design thinking uh, the whole iter iterative design process as well as systems thinking and working with systems and you know causal loops of consequences are certainly a part of why history happened um, and I was able to uh, use a combination of resources just yesterday to uh, define why and how games can model real-world and real-life events for students. Um, I used um, a simple video I found on BrainPop about game theory, of all things, complicated mathematical game theory, and um, it explained what games are, how game theory works, and then uh, how you need rational people or rational players to um, analyze games in that way. And then there was an activity from Stanford University's History Education Group, they're reading like a historian program, where you analyze a, um, a lunchroom fight, which is like he said, she said. And we brought that around to the prisoner's dilemma, which I read to the class 
where two suspects of a robbery, you know, have different consequences if they rat one another out. And the whole lesson and discussion really framed around why games are such an important, authentic model to provide situated learning for students in class. And that provides a nice uh, contextualization for the rest of the year as we use games, design games, and analyze games in class, not just put them in and have them play. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think good games and good teaching have so much in common, right? You know, so like at the at the best of good teaching, you really want an engaging experience. You want to um, really kind of give kids something that they can't experience through just reading a book alone. And so, how do you actually bring this 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 world alive? Whether you're simulating science or you're um, exploring sort of history through gameplay, it creates a safe learning environment, right? You know, so that you can play and fail, you can try again. Um, you know, it, it can collapse time scales so that you can, um, you know, explore all of ancient history and building, um, you know, complex dynamics that a lot of times, uh, you know, when you think about what kids have access to in their everyday lives, they don't actually get to become the kind of designers of these systems that we talk a lot about in science. They don't get to, um, you know, experience what it means to run large governments or to build cities or those kinds of things, but they can, um, through games, start to become empathetic with these experiences. And so it, it, it kind of distills these big ideas um, and helps prepare kids for, for that future. We can sort of bring that into this microcosm of the classroom and really um, make it more engaging and more fun at the same time. Yeah, I would think philosophically, um, you know, and, and this is not my area, it's just kind of looking at it as a game designer, and we often at Glass Lab have these very meta experiences of like we're trying to train kids to be creative thinkers the way that we do in our everyday work. And um, it just seems that what's happening across society and, and increasingly in the future is that things just keep moving faster. We have increased diversification. We have increased specialization. And so getting a grip on that big system of the world gets harder and harder. And I think games have a leverage in that place in this, like Kelly was saying, it helps you experience something from a very zoomed out perspective and also ideally I think helps you stay calm in the face of complexity because what you have to do in order to be successful in a game is actually manage your own emotions and that's a lot of what I think systems thinking helps you do. Very cool. Um, so um, you've all touched on the idea that, that video games have very complex mechanisms from designing to interfacing with teachers and students who are in the process of kind of learning how to navigate the game and, and have like you know success and, and failure or improvement states. Um, video games usually begin with a tutorial and a little bit of construction but uh, as we mentioned like over time game designers like don't need to provide as much instruction so when you get to the more complex problems you've built up this skill set in game um, and in real life that enables you to, to problem solve and, and continue to, to improve in the game. Um, how does this approach impact a student's ability to learn and adapt in the real world? I think it absolutely does, right? Like those are the kinds of habits of mind that we just can't we can't tell somebody to go about doing. But I think um, you know having experiences where I can figure this out. I can find the right menu. I can I can imagine the intent of the designer. They want me to go in this direction, right? And so it's a really sophisticated read of uh, you know this this very man-made universe. And so um, so how do how do you know how do kids interpret sort of the real environment? Feel comfortable inquiring about it? Uh, you know 
investigating these small little nuances where it breaks. You know, I mean, they love to find these kinds of things. Um, you know, I think it is a challenge for today's kids. Is that is that um, you know instructionism and being told how to do these kinds of things is a real turnoff, right? They really they feel empowered. They really want to know how to do these kinds of things, and and rather you know it kind of helps us with this sort of flipped classroom approach. Is that rather the most receptive that they become is after they've they've explored a space, they kind of know how it works, and now they want to level up or they want to understand, they want a language to describe what it is, and so um, so they can actually have this experience, and then it opens up for this discussion. Um, so it's not replacing the teacher, but it allows the teacher to really engage complex content and and uh, you know following this experience in game um, that can be much more elevated than what we could get you know through reading a book or through a classroom lecture or any other kinds of first introductions. And it gives the student a safe place to, to play because there's so little of that in a structured school environment oftentimes where you are able to experiment and try and do different things. Um, you know, an example I like to use was when we were testing SimCity EDU last year. Students would play around. They would put one bus stop in the middle of the town and they would just wait and see what would happen. Or they would put, uh, they would fail on purpose just for fun. They would open a Chinese restaurant next to the dun the uh, donut shop because they both happen to uh, be prone to fires. So what would happen if you put two of them together, and you know, then they could see the cause and effect, and then that just leads to uh, me just having the conversation as to how the system works, why all of a sudden there are protesters in front of city hall. You, know, you don't necessarily have to succeed or to win in the game, but um, it puts you in that authentic context where you can have the conversation about why you made those decisions. And I've had a lot of really strong discussions with students about their decision-making in games, uh, and then the content just follows. Rather than, what did you learn from this game? More about, why did you make these decisions? What seemed like fun to do? And then the content just is wrapped around that. Yeah, I think that the whole subject of tutorials in games is very interesting and thorny from a game design perspective. Because I think um, most game designers would say, if we have to tutorialize something, it's because we've done something wrong. Or because we, we are trying to have to get you to one point specifically where the fun is going to start. So if you're playing through the tutorial, it might be to sort of make you feel safe and familiarize you. And especially the modern games that a lot of today's middle schoolers are playing are very heavily tutorialized. Uh, they're very hand-holdy, very click, 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 and kids are becoming to, um, to expect this from a game that is going to tell them exactly what to do. And it, it's actually a little bit concerning to me. And so I'm, I'm very interested in, like Matt, from your perspective, when you have middle school kids who are expecting that, and they're faced with a game like SimCity that's extremely open-ended, they have to experiment and, and really feel things out and fail a lot, how do you take a kid who's used to Temple Run and get them to play something that's as complex as SimCity? Well, I try to make, I, I just was discussing what informal learning was today, just mm -hmm. taking an assessment of who's gone on YouTube to find out how to cook something or build something, train a pet, and, you know, that's been everybody, a video game walkthrough, right? So, you know, that is uh, certainly a spot where, you know, people go and watch Minecraft videos for hours on end to learn how to do things uh, rather than just going to a, um, you know, they're, they're researching the community of practice is what they're doing. And um, I think, uh, you know, that is 
something that I enjoyed about Scratch. I had students start with a simple remix project about remixing games or animations to make them theme towards uh, the Middle Ages or whatever content we were covering. But some students would go home and they would want to start from literally scratch and start to build, but they would have to go to the scratch community and they would have to learn that way. So it's, it's sometimes it's good to just give a little bit to whet their appetite to see the potential for something Maybe make a comparison to something that they've done already, like Minecraft videos, and then they tend to um, will take it from there. That's one end. The other end that I've been toying with is the student as designer. So the student testing something first before turning it in to another group without having um, comment. Like if you're, let's say, you're making something in Game Star Mechanic. And you want the sprite to go left, and the person keeps clicking right. You know, the play tester student shouldn't be saying, no, 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 you, sh you should be doing this, right? So putting a student in that experience also, um, I think, deepens the uh, experience of having empathy for what the, uh, the designer is intending, uh, why they want you to do certain things. So I think it's all coming from different angles. That's that would be my approach so far. Yeah, I think we have to worry a little bit, you know, as you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of everyday like people kind of enter into this space to create the gaming version, which is, which is basically a lot of it looks like digital flashcards for the classroom, and so a lot of it is instructionism, then just just translated into a screen, and then you can earn points, and isn't that a game? Right, and so I think we do need to worry a little bit about um, becoming more savvy consumers of the kinds of games that we're plugging into schools, and um, you know I think it, this development is just going to be exponential because I, I can imagine you know so many different different um, you know curriculum uh, development companies kind of creating the game-based version, thinking that it will sell, and to a certain extent, schools are are not our best market because a lot of things can go, I mean, uh, without being tested there, you know, so like games that are inspired by the commercial industry, things that have had to succeed in the out-of-school environment, you know, have really been field tested in a way that if kids don't like it, they can walk. But I see a lot of serious educational games that go into the classroom space, and they actually still float um, because the kids, it's better than getting the textbook, it's better than the lecture, right? But they're still not good games, they don't really transform it. And then people kind of create, they think they're creating good things and they, they create more of this stuff and so people get saturated. So how do we prepare educators, administrators to actually purchase and um, invest in sort of the messy gaming? You know, you've talked about Sims, you've talked about the design-based kinds of open sandbox play games, but that also means that there's a lot of divergence in what the kids can um, take out of it? How do we assure people that this is going to translate to standardized test scores and so forth, right? And so the system itself is can um, uh, privilege sort of the bad games in schools, right? And, and so how do we prepare teachers to be really savvy consumers about not only the games that are fun, not only the games that improve the test scores, but really the games that really prepare kids for the 21st century. I think that's, you know, that, that is something we got to keep our eye on and really kind of help people to understand. Um, particularly a lot of teachers are not gamers, um, and so how do, they, how do they become really savvy consumers of these things? I think sandboxes are very interesting. Um, I like to grade sandboxes 
with a rubric as an authentic assessment, sort of the uh, the way you would grade, um, you know, uh, a physical project. If I use Lego and pipe cleaners to build a revolutionary fort, or if you build it in Minecraft, or if you build a uh, using a rocket kit like in Kerbal Space, um, there you can you know you could have a, a an authentic assessment. Uh, it is a lot more. You know, and I don't think teachers have enough um, literature or um, training on exactly the differences between what different types of games are, different categories of games. You know, is a sandbox even a game or a digital toy, or does that even matter? And then there is also, um, yeah, there's just the the amount of really good games. That that's a really good point that you made. That. Many, from what I've heard, informally asking people when I was writing the book, that you can build the best game. Kids are really excited when you deploy it into a classroom. But then when they go home and there's so much competition on other media and they go on Steam, are they really going to go play, you know, um, the game? You know, I did have one student today who asked me for a password again to get back into SimCity just for fun because he downloaded it. But... You know, how many other students aren't doing that? How many other students aren't, you know, going to go home and continue to play even the best educational game? And I wonder, like, if I use something in school, if that changes it just because it's done in school. All of a sudden, if I'm playing Minecraft in school, there are students that don't like Minecraft, or they've been avoiding it because it's not cool to them, and then they have to do it in a project in class. What effect does that have? It's like, free, you know, it's like, bringing in popular literature to school, what does that do to reading? Like if you're made to read The Hunger Games or Wonder rather than doing it on your own. And I think that is a lot of the drivers in games, extrinsic, intrinsic, um, you know, it's like the difference between a pickup game of basketball or going to, you know, a league and, you know, you have to play the game because the coach makes you play the game. Right. Yeah, I think that... Um one of the things that we run into over and over is very hard. Uh, to me, it's actually this fundamental paradox of education where you want to get inside the mind of a kid in order to, to figure out how you can best step them forward, but at the same time, you have an agenda. You have something you want them to learn that they may not be on the same page with you about whether they want to learn it or not. And I think that um, what can happen with educational games is that we tend to like recapitulate the same learning process. If I'm going to just give you this content and put it in there, it's for your own good, you know, so suck it up. And I think that what I really like about the newer approaches to using games in the classroom are things like Matt does, where you just engage directly with the kids and say, look, uh, let's talk about the ways in which this game is bad. Let's talk about how it could have been better. Let's talk about what the designers were trying to do and do you think it was effective or not which I think does a few things. It actually engages with what the game is doing and not just the content that it's delivering, which I think is one of the most powerful things about games, how they work and why they work. And then it also encourages this skepticism about media, which I think is incredibly important in this media-saturated environment that they're in. So I suspect that one of the ways of having more effective games in school is um, getting teachers more comfortable with games as they are, not just like an educational game that's going to teach you math or something like that, but a game that's going to start a conversation that's going to enhance the relationship between the teacher and the student. 
Yeah, I think that's a really nice point, and I think it highlights one of the things we haven't talked about yet, which is the social nature of games, mm-hmm. and and you know that's where board games are just you know so central to to you know family life, for example, right? It's something that we can all kind of enter into into the space of the shared space together, um, and we can also think about uh, how to support and give each other feedback, and and you know it creates these new kind of rules or interactions that that um, might be sort of atypical for how we might interact and for sustained engagement and quality um, kinds of, of, of feedback and so I think um, you know it, you know for example we could think about um, you know the teams learning from each other sequencing problems you know so that we can um, each specialize in certain skill sets and and achieve a, a greater whole you know games can really be designed in ways um, you know, I'm thinking of World of Warcraft here, where where everybody needs to be um, an individual, and and by being a team, that we can actually like uh, uh, pursue this common goal together. Um, and and you know, how can we use our, our areas of specialty to kind of solve these larger, harder kinds of problems over time? And and certainly, you know, beating beating these goals kind of like creates a, a classroom identity, a team identity um, that that would be hard if we didn't have this shared enterprise. To Together, um, so I, I think that, that that really it nicely highlights you know some of the some of the other kinds of aspects of games that we don't always do well at school. School can be very individualistic. Yeah, I love this idea of the classroom as a guild. I think that's really cool. <laughs> There's a title. <laughs> yeah, Kylie, I love that you you touched you've touched on the the very pro-social behaviors that you can see inside gameplay. Um, uh, there's a lot of collaborative components to it in terms of like say coordinated team strategy, um, how you collect items and engage in missions and things like that. Um, so I'd love to raise the question with you, Matt. Um, when you're going through your simulations or your, your progress in SimCity with your students, um, how do they engage in the problem and how do they communicate with each other um, if they do work in teams? Well, the first time I, de- the first time I uh, deployed it in class, they played one everybody one-to-one and um, you know it, it is different if you know if somebody discovers something since they're all co-locational all in the same room one person says something they'll shout it out uh, there's the competition and I'm um, you know I, I had a discussion with the class about what games actually are like zero-sum games non-zero-sum games really to break it down and you know there is the competition aspect of SimCities which is promoted by the fact that there's a leaderboard. There's, you know, the students can see how many, um, you know, uh, badges that are unlocked per, per mission. Uh, they can see their progress, and then they can see it versus other students or versus their own best score. So uh, socially, the class had a, a friendly air of competition. Um, and then, it, you know, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about competition in class because, you know, it's one of those rich get richer, poor get poor scenarios. Sometimes, I change it up with teams just to for my you know not an experiment, but just to see what would happen. And we ran it again, and we had work in teams, and some were boy boy, and some were girl girl, some were mixed up, and they were all still competitive. Um, you know, I don't like to think that there's some gender stereotype that boys in middle school are more competitive because there certainly were girls that were very competitive even as they were working in teams. Um, but, I mean, it was all in the spirit of, of good fun. Um, you know, I, 
I, I do make sure that everybody is aware of that. You know, I think it's important to lay the ground rules first when you have a game in class that the game is the activity. The points for winning a game is not going to get you an A. Uh, you know, if you have a, a leaderboard, like a whiteboard I use for Socratic Smackdown, the debate game from Quest to Learn, you know, those aren't grades, and the students are well aware that those aren't grades. That's just the activity. You know, they'll have a separate assessment from that. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, whether or not you want that type of competition in class. I do like the idea of the guild aspect. I was, you know, I spoke last summer and last spring to Lee Sheldon, who wrote Multiplayer Classroom uh, from uh, RPI. And, I, you know, I like how he sets up the class as a guild using positive social mechanics. He does a thing where, for extra credit, uh, one person in the guild group needs to answer the question, and if they do it, the whole guild group gets the extra credit point. So you get that, like, you know, that fun mechanic of helping somebody else, seeing somebody else succeed. And I think that's, that's a really great way to go. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I mean, games have the... Even the most non-cooperative, I mean, sorry, the most, you know, non-zero-sum game is still going to have some aspect built in there of competition, and somebody's going to seek that out. Yeah, that's great. You know, it, it does, you know, it reminds me that there's, there's so many different design solutions to games, you know, so we're, we're talking about games as if it's a homogenous genre of things, and, and we talked a little bit about sandbox games as opposed to, like, say, first player games, and, you know, team games as opposed to individual kind of playing games, but I think that one of the things that we've been studying is just a small thing about kind of changing um, some of the point structures. And so uh, we recently did a, um, we, we wrote an article where we were studying a board game that we had designed. And we were trying to engage kids in learning about systems but through biological content. So this one was about bees and collecting nectar. The kids knew a lot about bees already, but the game itself was to teach random probability and, and um, some emergent factors. It was interesting, we played the game and the first round, uh, you know, we thought, well, kids, you know, they, they all like to keep track of their own points. And so, you know, bees don't really do that, but, you know, this will add more fun to the game. And so the kids had, like, a little half-sheet scorecard. They kept track of how much nectar they collected, and they moved forward. And then, um, you know, the other half of the class uh, was just waiting in the wings, and they were going to play the game the next day. In that first group, what had happened was that because they had the individual point system, even though normally they got along in class really well, I mean, the whole class just took a nosedive, right? And the, the, the board game that we were designing was kind of a disaster, right? They were, you know, kind of saying, oh, I've got 10 points, you've only got one, you're going to lose, you know, all of this kind of negative kind of space. A lot of the kids that were losing and were behind were kind of staring off in space, you know, doing cartwheels, all of the kind of like non-content behavior. The, um, you know, the teachers were kind of going frantic trying to redirect kids, and the kids themselves were trying to redirect their peers to st stay on point. Um, and, you know, just simple things like the dice not being passed to the next players. The next day, all we did was just one small change, and all we did was have the kids actually keep their point systems together. 
instead of having an individual construct. It turns out they engaged in the science content, they passed the dice more quickly, there was a lot less negative talk, um, there was a lot less redirects, you know, the, um, you know, just it was, it was a lot more the kinds of social behavior that you would like to see and a lot more, um, you know, similar to what the class is normally like. And so we, we uh, looked at and kind of uh, did a, a nice discourse analysis of those two conditions, but I, I think it does tell us that sometimes when we can think about creating our games, what um, what people would call collaborative games, so there's a lot of commercial games that are out there now where we all win or we all lose, and you were talking um, Matthew, about um, kind of uh, mods of your game and how you um, would mod, you know, Sims or you'd mod these other things so that um, they're competing in teams and that they would all win or all lose. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, as we think about what happens in, in real life, you know, we work for a company and, right, we all get to keep our job because we all win. And this idea that either I'm the superstar or I'm not and how do I, how do I start to be part of a larger team, um, you know, we need, we need good games to actually teach us how to be part of this collective, how to be part of this collaborative. Um, you know, as we move into these online or digital environments, what does it mean to be one in a thousand, right, or one in thirty? Um, how do we, how do we stay strong as individuals but also help um, the greater whole and the greater good and so games can be actually a really great way to sort of learn that um, you know there's uh, a lot of commercial games on the market now that are that are going after these kinds of gaming mechanics but I but um, I think it gives us a chance um, to really kind of think about other ways and and a lot of times I'm playing with kids now and we'll play say sorry and they'll say well do you want to play it collaborative or do you want to play it um, competitive and so we'll actually decide on the mode of gameplay um, because some of the kids are very uncomfortable in sort of that competitive environment, and some kids are very, very comfortable in that mechanic, but, um, but at least it gives them an option. I think that, um, I don't know if it's quite an exact segue into talking about uh, students as game designers, but uh, I was hoping we could talk about that too, and I think uh, in particular, Kylie, when you were saying that um, thinking about collaborative games and competitive games and, and the dynamics that happen they just very emergently from classroom settings whenever there's the slightest little rule inflection in the kids social space um, makes me think that kids are in a game space every day all the time I mean we kind of all are but the game of middle school the social game of the middle school environment is incredibly competitive and incredibly complex and there are alliances and teams and people have points and so there's kind of this invisible system that's happening right in the world of the kids and I wonder how you could activate that and say hey can you guys make a game like the, the Bee and Nectar game what would that be if this was instead about bullying what if it was about the way that kids interact with each other in a social environment and uh, would they latch on to that and be able to kind of express it as the um, game form of their world? I like the idea also of how mechanics need to match, or they, it's best if they match what you're trying to get across. Yeah. So, you know, your lesson shouldn't be chocolate covered broccoli, right? Uh, you know, there's certain mechanics that work, right? And um, to have that conversation with students also, and how would you turn this into a game? Mm -hmm. What what would work best? You know, role playing, guessing, bluffing, uh, just simple things like that. You know, I, it it might be clear that voting is the best mechanic to teach about democracy. Is that in every lesson about democracy? You know, for instance, um, 
I think those the, the whole discussion of having them try it, and it doesn't have to be a successful game, you know, in the end, but at least so they are aware of um, also what to look for in the in the larger discussion. If you if you're elevating games, which you should, to the same level of critique and um, thought as all other media, then the mechanics of play and how they're delivering the what you want them to deliver uh, should be part of that conversation too. Yeah, and I think um, one uh, partly what what made me think about this from Kylie's comments was that modding is the way to step into that, right? So talking about playing sorry collaboratively versus competitively, what's the difference when we play it these two ways? What happens and why do you think that that happens? And did it come from the mechanics? And isn't that funny how the rules of something can completely change the behavior of a group of people? Right. Right. You know, one of the things that we found really interesting, because we, we try, you know, I, I um, uh, in my lab, we're, we're constructionists um, at heart, so we really kind of think about design, design thinking, as really being central to the learning process. So the modding, the creating of your own games, all those kinds of things are, are really, um, you know, kind of at the heart of the kind of experience that we want to um, engage our graduate students, but also our undergraduates and our and even young children in. And I think that, that design process I think what's really powerful about a shared board game as a as an introductory experience into um, game design is it becomes a very collaborative mode you know so we've there's a lot of digital environments that allow you to create digital games you know scratch being one game star mechanic being another um, but a lot of times you need to have a good design capacity before you can actually design something that's kind of interesting or at least something that questions some of the existing norms um, but when we mod uh, like a physical kind of game, we can all kind of discuss it. And it's the discussion that becomes important. Like, oh, well, if I set this here and then this becomes this rule. So we're actually co-designing. And that's actually, you know, in both the design thinking literature and in the games literature, it's actually really hard to co-design something. You know, um, a lot of times we design something else and we open it up to share with people. But as game designers, we know that actually that's where a lot of the learning takes place. Right in those decisions that we made in the mods, um, as we play it out, as we try it out, um, I work with a local boys and girls group, and and um, they um, they do a thing in their gym where the kids actually just kind of like create variations of like um, you know kickball or variations of pool, all those kinds of things, and so they just keep playing those dynamics out, and they think they know what's going to happen, but then it's like this really complex experiment of like what happens with the people in the room, how clearly did they describe the rules, all of this stuff, and then they have to mod it again. And again, think about how much agency kids have to design anything in the world, nothing, right? Like it, it is, you know, we want them to become, you know, the future designers of our, of, um, you know, our homes, our political systems, all of these things, and yet they get very little experience uh, playing with these design principles. And so they, you know, they, they need to develop these design capacities. So building games allows them to, again, it's this microcosm. So you could build a game around science content or build a game around history content or around uh, language arts content. So you can, in Engage in you know almost all of your disciplines through games, um, as well as thinking about how to how social systems and, and group dynamics work. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the message for teachers as well. Is like 
uh, the whole onslaught of games and ed tech seems really overwhelming and intimidating. And uh, But what if instead we said, well, think about the board games that you played as a kid. Think about the games you've got stacked in your classroom that you don't really even use and you use on rainy days and things like that. Pick up one of those games and talk about how to change it. Talk about how to take ownership for it and, and what happens with all of those dynamics. I mean, I think um, in a lot of the, the talks that I've had with Matt about the stuff he does with his kids and thinking, talk, teaching the fundamental principles of game design to kids, to me, is one of the most exciting things that's been happening in games and education in the past few years. And I, I don't know, Matt, if you can talk about some of the, what are the principles that you focus on in teaching kids to do in the playtesting practice? Well, the, this summer, I started it last year. I started a, um, a project for the Revolutionary War and there were stations around the room. And the project itself, uh, because it really it just comes from project-based learning and problem-based learning, which was my original background, which is essentially a game in many circumstances. But I brought the students in as uh, co-designers on this. I told them I never tried this one before, but we're going to learn the Revolutionary War as like war games. So there will be four stations. One, the students uh, modded headbands, which uh, you it's, a, it's like a, there are several versions of the game. One version has like, you know, a bunny rabbit or a unicorn, a little index card, and you put it on your head. And you sit in a circle, and you have to guess what's on there. But they had to use the content from what would be studying, you know, like certain his, historical people from that time period. And in order to do well in the game, you would have to have done your homework in a flip learning fashion, study up, uh, you know, who is Deborah Sampson, you know, who are some... You know, um, not a, not like George Washington, but other people in the Revolutionary War, and then play it. Another group did Minecraft building forts. Another group um, made badges using Make Badges, a simple site to award badges to people in the Revolutionary War for accomplishments. And the fourth station was building board games, and they would uh, brainstorm mechanics, and they would make or remix different board games. And there was, you know. Um, battles to battles instead of apples to apples and there were different variations of Monopoly and some made more sense than others. That station took many more days because they had to play test it and use feedback forms from uh, one of the Q design packs from Institute of Play. Uh, so they were going through the entire design process and then I gave them the, at the end of the whole unit because it wasn't perfect and I told the class it wouldn't be perfect. Um, because I, I don't think that I should be teaching instruction that way, that I should be open to their feedback and that their feedback counts for the next year's iteration of the project. And, you know, some of the stations took less time than others. Some of them needed to work with others to build on Minecraft. They're not all experts. Uh, clearly, it took more time because they put more care and thought into the board game section. So that was my first experience, and it was really meaningful to get feedback that counted from students, and they knew the feedback counted. And I've been asking questions on a lot of activities. Um, you know, was this fun to do? Did this feel more like play or more like work? What were the directions clear that I gave? Um, what, would, what could be better? What would you rather have done? You know, simple questions like that, and they know that, those questions will count because I will use those next year. Uh, this summer, I had the opportunity to uh, present at the Games and Education Symposium in New York, and I had uh, gone to a wonderful workshop from Scott Nicholson, who's a professor at Syracuse University, 
and he did a session called Tabletop Game Jam. And it's based off of Game Jam, and there was just the White House Game Jam. And his was just about how to get kids involved in the whole process of um, making non-digital games. And then uh, you, you make your game. You have a time limit. The whole process is a, sort of a game within a game as well because, you know, you have a time limit and, you know, you're changing a rule and uh, what would make this more fun. And then at a certain point, after a certain amount of time, you have to get up and you have to jigsaw to another part of the room, sit with another group, play their game, and the group that made the game's not allowed to say anything. They just have to watch them, the, the student follow the rules. And then it was a really interesting application of writing and reading technical and informational text, which is a common core standard. So having the group write out the rules and having the other group try to follow those step-by-step -step instructions, were those rules simple enough? You know, that's a real conversation. And I think that, plus, you just happen to be teaching content with the games. You know, I think that's almost secondary. That just seems to fall right into place. That's great. Um, and so we have uh, 10 minutes left uh, from this webinar uh, series this far. Um, and I'd love to make sure to remind everybody who's watching right now, um, if you have any comments or additional questions you'd like to ask us, um, please hashtag Connected Learning, and we'll be sure to do our best to get uh, back to you with an answer uh, from our lovely panel. Uh, and so we've all touched on the complex games that are out there, the ways in which we can engage with students in and outside of the classroom. Um, of these video games, like, are, are they created equal? Um, especially when you're looking for a specific subject or a specific learning. Um, and of those video games, um, are there any other evidence or stories you may have come across, uh, be it in your own life or, or that of your colleagues? Um, uh, what stories do we have about playing video games leading to better academic skills, whether it's reading, writing, science, uh, so on and so forth? Well, I, I would love to tell a story about um, you know some of the work that we've done around um, Rock Band and you know the really popular um, uh, kind of immersive gameplay approach to to being part of a of a band. And what was really interesting that was that was happening in, in this space is that you know we were studying at the time that it was just coming out in the commercial market right before it kind of became such a, a phenomenon. Um, the kids at our our local boys and girls club space had never had an experience with it. Um, but they were coming every day to this after-school center. Um, they had access to all sorts of stuff, including, you know, playing games that were really popular. So they would play a lot of pool. They'd play a lot of um, kickball, like I mentioned, up at the gym. Um, and they played a lot of, like, uh, video games in the... Um, in the computer room, um, and so they were really excited to sign up for uh, for this rock band club that we were starting. But what they weren't excited for at all were to sign up for the free um, music lessons at the school, so or at the at the club. And so they had access to free violin lessons. They had access to free um, uh, recorder lessons. And when we'd go and we'd look, it was a small, small group. They had trouble recruiting. Kids would rather go play these other games. They didn't want to sit still, and they didn't want to play this repertoire. Of 
of music that that was just unrelated to their to their uh, you know cultural practices, and so um, and so they just didn't enroll. And my I had a grad student at the time, and he's like, well, you know, let's let's just keep watching them. Let's see if something interesting happens. I'm like, no, let's get out of this space. Let's create something new. And so we brought rock band in, and you know, there was a line out the door. The kids just crowded in the space. You know, we had you know 90 to 100 kids sign up. You know, we just had trouble even just accommodating all of them in the space. It was by far the most popular, you know, club within the club at the space. And so, um, you know, at first we thought, well, maybe maybe they're not learning any anything about music, or maybe there's some misconception about music. And so we we're kind of looking at um, this disjuncture, kind of kind of really skeptical of what kids might learn in rock band. And as we started looking a little bit closer, we started kind of really scrutinizing with um, the help of several professional composers and musicians looking at what was actually being taught in the game we started noticing actually a lot of really good things were happening in the game the kids were certainly coming day after day they were practicing hard you know they were air drumming in the background and air guitaring in the background you know they were singing you know kind of like backup singing for the singer that was on on um, on stage singing at the particular moment they would rotate through it helped um, you know really kind of think about you know, creating norms at the club as a global thing, and and we started wondering. You know, we could obviously see that they were improving in game, but we we started wondering actually how are they doing at their traditional music skills. So we went. They all had um, in the public school system. They all have access to music ed. So we worked with their teachers and we created an assessment that was kind of you know what would kids in in grades three through eight you know kind of be capturing in music. And so we created this assessment where they had to transcribe what they heard. They had to to um, you know perform what it is that they were sight reading and they had to um, write uh, down in traditional notation what they were hearing and so it was a really nice kind of uh, transfer task that we had them do and it turns out that the kids that had persisted longer in the rock band club actually um, there's a significant correlation with how they did up this transfer task and so that really kind of started raising our eyebrows you know we it wasn't conclusive evidence but it was pretty um, it was really good strong evidence but then what happened is uh, towards the end of the club, the uh, the violin lessons, the recorder lessons, they started saying, well, actually, if we meet in the same room after rock band, maybe we can get some kids in there. We'll just call this the music room. And and our kids, you know, the first week, they kind of like put down their rock band instruments and they, they left it, but they're like, wait, who's staying in here and why are they staying in here? What are they doing? They're doing more music? What? What? Okay, they're doing that kind of music. Well, that's okay. I'll sign up for this. And so, for the very first time, they maxed out the class. They created a waiting list, um, and we just followed up. It's been years now, and the kids are not only not only the kids that decided to elect into this. They're still in um, uh, violin. They've joined the youth orchestras and are continuing. And so, it was the very first time for these kids to actually decide this was for them. And so, we talk about this as kind of a doorway into the work. Um, but for us, you know, that really holds the educational potential of games. Um, we don't get to document it as often as we'd like, but how do we get kids to just say yes to the opportunities that are out there? Um, how do we get that to be that doorway in? And when we asked the kids, you know, why did you do that? And they said, well, I really want to be able to be in a rock band, but I realized if I could play violin, then I can certainly play the guitar. And so, uh, so they started seeing the similarities between what they were interested in and what, um, and what uh, the opportunities that were there before them uh, could provide. That's so cool. Is there anything um, published about that? It's fascinating. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm going to post it here in our chat feed, and I'm, I'm sure John will will post it as a as an archive. But it was published in the International Journal of uh, Learning and Media, so um, you know the uh, the journal associated with this community. So um, so I, I do hope that that um, that you guys take a moment to read it. But but it is you know it was just it was so fantastic to see um, and to publish this. And it wasn't just us. It was really interesting. The Guitar Center was noticing people who came in to purchase um, Rock Band came back later and actually bought the real guitar with some astronomical pr proportion. When we talked to professional gamers about why this is, they were already gaming 30, 40 hours worth of time a week. And they were like, well, I've always wanted to learn to play the guitar, and now I realize if I just spent that much time learning to play guitar, I would actually be quite good. So uh, why don't I just go buy the real thing and, and start playing? Um, you know, at the same time, we noticed we, we did some novice expert studies too. The people that were the best at the game from the starting point, we looked at professional gamers, rockers, and traditional musicians. And I usually ask, you know, who would you want to be in your rock band? And it turns out it was the... Um, it was the uh, uh, the classically trained musicians because what rock band's really teaching you is how to sight read um, quite well and how to like perform in beat and so forth and so um, so they did quite well. The rock musicians, although they were familiar with it, their skill sets around uh, oral oral skills and so um, so the you know kind of performing in time wasn't as strong for them. Yeah, it seems like that to me. That's such a great example of. Um, so many of the things that we're, we've been talking about of both how games are not replacements for things that are in classrooms, they're complementary and they're amplifiers of things that we want kids to do and their potential for attitude adjustment is, is massive and just how it, it turns out if you're engaged with what it is that you want to learn, if you see a pathway through it, how to get to where you really want but you're afraid that you can't get there because it's too big and too complicated, you're going to do a lot better at it if, if you've got something that really hooks you. I love the, uh, the, the, the angular approach we have to creating safe spaces through gaming as well. Um, and this actually leads to a question we have from Twitter um, from Robert uh, as to uh, teacher engagement. So, and enabling them and to empowering them to, to use games in their own classroom. Uh, so, do you think making games and innovation a bigger part of teaching will attract and retain more innovative teachers? And I've heard two schools of thought of that, and I've, I also watched a panel at Games for Change about that. Um, you know, who is more apt to deploy games in a classroom? Um, you know, some people think that it's people that are born with games. Jesse Shell said that also. Like, you know, you grew up, administrators grew up with games. They may want to, um, they're comfortable already playing video games. Uh, at that same talk, uh, Alan Gershafeld said a little bit of the opposite, that older teachers already know what doesn't work. Newer teachers, uh, pre-service teachers, maybe kind of afraid to bring in video games into a class, whereas a more seasoned teacher would uh, know that that's what would engage a student, and they are willing to go down that route to see what works. Um, and then, of course, what wasn't mentioned, but I, I know this as a practicing teacher, is it depends on the leadership of the administration. So our administrator here, he is open to the fact that we are, uh, you know, his A-team, as he calls it. So, you know, he is comfortable with our decision-making process. And, you know, if I want to bring in SimCity or Historia, I did last year, that test, 
or any other game for that matter. If I request Minecraft in the class, there it is. So, you know, it really depends, I guess. Uh, there's the whole, you know, mixed nature of of the trust of the teacher and the teacher trusting the uh, technology itself. And it's also healthy to take the, you know, the same way you would with educational technology, you know, a systemic approach, not a technocentric approach. So, you know, how does introducing a game into the classroom affect the whole system of the classroom? You're not just, you know, making it the focal point of the classroom. The same way you wouldn't, you know, make uh, the buttons on PowerPoint a focal point of the classroom. It's, you know, it's the students making a PowerPoint, they're just learning how to present something. Great. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for an amazing conversation. It's been very inspiring for me personally as well. Um, for everybody out there, uh, we'll have a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on uh, connectedlearning.tv uh, with other curated content on the way that you can share with your network as well. Uh, this wraps up the first webinar of our month-long series, but that doesn't mean our conversations have to just pause here. Uh, we encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. Um, if you're interested in learning about upcoming webinars and other Connected Learning highlights, uh, visit www.connectedlearning.tv uh, and sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, you can also follow us at uh, CLA, uh, CL Alliance and uh, Glass Lab Games as well. Uh. We hope to see you online next Thursday, September 18th at the same time, at the start of 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll help you learn some effective ways uh, to address some of the skepticism surrounding video game-based learning. Uh, thanks again, everyone.